Canada needs to come up with a serious and credible plan to move past COVID, to end all COVID-era mandates and restrictions, to get our economy back on track, but also to begin to address the considerable harm done to the social fabric of our country by the unprecedented government overreach. I'm Candice Malcolm, and this is The Candice Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. So it's become almost like a cliche lately to say that we need to move past COVID. We need to get back to normal. The reality is that we cannot move back in time. We'll never be able to get back to 2019. We need to move forward, yes, but we also need to meticulously study what exactly happened over the past two years. We need to investigate what happened and why. We need to cancel the overzealous government programs, yes, but we also need to put in place safeguards to make sure that that power can never be abused again, that power-thirsty politicians, overbearing governments cannot undermine our rights and freedoms again in the future. So today I'm very pleased to be joined by someone who is working on these very ideas, working on a project to get us to move forward and to get our lives back on track. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Irvin Studen. Irvin is the founder and editor-in-chief of Global Brief Magazine, one of the leading international policy thinkers in Canada. Irvin has been a public policy professor and worked for both the Canadian Prime Minister and an Australian Prime Minister. In 2004, he was a member of a small team who wrote Canada's first national security policy. 2006, he did something similar down in Australia. Irvin holds a bachelor's degree from York University, a master's from both Oxford and the London School of Economics, and a PhD from Oswood, Osgood Law School. Notably, this is really interesting, Irvin has taught foreign policy both at Ukraine's Higher School of Public Administration in Kiev, as well as at Russia's Academy for National Economy and Public Administration in Moscow. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Russia Ukraine conflict as well. There are a few people in the world who are more qualified to talk about what's going on than Irvin, and I'm really pleased to have him on the show today. So Irvin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's a real pleasure, Candice. Thanks for having me. I enjoy your work. Well, I appreciate it. So you you, chaired, you recently chaired and you wrote a national exit plan for COVID. So first of all, uh, take us through what led to this and why you decided to take on this project. Well, we were not exiting. We were not exiting as a country. We were studying COVID, we were living COVID, we were sentimentalizing. And in late 2021, I had a long conversation with the person who is now the co-chair of this national, the Canada Science and Policy Committee to exit the pandemic, Kwajo Karamantang. He said, uh, we said, we should bring together the leading scientists and leading policy thinkers and do our own science table. And so I turned that on its head and we, we spoke for, for a while and I said, Quajo, let's actually call it the committee to exit the pandemic because I'm a policy person, you're a science and medical person. We'll bring together these solitudes, the solitudes that really have not been talking to each other. The medical and science community is clinically strong, but they stink at public policy. I mean, really they stink because public policy is a craft. It's not something that can be just made up through pure intelligence. And the policy community, the political community is illiterate in science, largely. So we bring together these solitudes, properly national, uh, specialists across all the disciplines, which is key, and I'm sure we'll get to that, and we choreograph an exit. So we're not there to study or sentimentalize. It really is a policy lead informed by science. So Kwajo and I and the committee have released the national exit plan. It is comprehensive. It is 
regionalized across the second largest country in the world. And it speaks to a policy choreography of exit across eight systems crises, which are important to understand if you're really going to understand where we are, what's happened, and how to properly get out as a country so that we have a good tomorrow. It's excellent. Such a great initiative and so comprehensive. So I want to go through some of the areas that you focused on. One of the things I thought was interesting that you had two different categories, one COVID public health and one non-COVID public health. And I I know that it's become a big issue that everyone's talking about, the fact that so many people have neglected their health, so many, so much of this early early cancer prevention, so much mental health issues um, have, have come up in some cases, they're far worse than, than COVID itself. So if, could, could you walk us through those two different um, public health uh, areas and why you drew that distinction? Well, there are, there are actually eight systems and those are, there are two of the eight. So I'll, I'll walk through the, the eight and then explain what, what those two mean and why we came to that okay. uh, divination. It's COVID public health, non-COVID public health. A couple of years ago, you might've said public health as a generality, one system, but we divided it to be a little sharper. COVID public health, non-COVID public health. Then there's, of course, the economy and business. Education, institutions, national unity, social fabric, uh, then the, the, and then the international. I might be missing one. Uh, I'm a systems thinker, and the only proper way to have dealt with the COVID pandemic at the start, this is how the best countries dealt with it, but certainly on exit, is to think of the country in systems. At that point, we would appreciate that while COVID was a shock to the country, it was not the only system going in the second largest country in the world in a big society. We always have many balls in the air. That's the appropriate way to think of a, a, a complex country. In the early pandemic, through some of the solitudes we discussed and also through social media and the general inexperience in Canada in dealing with crises of this scale, we reduced all of our reality to COVID counts, uh, for better or worse. And I'm not sentimentalizing, I'm just recounting what was. But then we began to think that COVID was our only condition and that solving COVID, whatever that meant, would bleed favorably into all these other systems, which we neither appreciated nor understood. As a result of that reduction of all our reality to the COVID public health pandemic, we collapsed the other systems. I mean, literally collapsed. Education, which is near and dear to my heart and which we've been working on separately through the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids, was a total collapse. I mean, kids started being ousted from all education in total. 200,000 kids plus across the country in the Oliver Twist condition, not in any school at all. Businesses were being collapsed and bankrupted and ousted for no reason other than we imagined that the only thing happening was the pandemic. Whereas other, other countries had an appreciation, the pandemic is here, we put an accent on it, but there are other fish to fry. We have a big country, we can't collapse the economy. Kids should still be educated because tomorrow is gonna to be difficult. We have to keep the country unified. We have to keep our international standing. We keep diplomatic and intelligence activities. And we didn't. The government closed the society and the government itself retreated. And betwixt these two solitudes, we, in the de-energization of the society, we had disintegration. And so the systems approach commends a reconstitution of these systems that were collapsed. That's why when we say COVID public health, we're at an endemic stage. For all practical intents and purposes, the pandemic is over. 
for, for Canada. It is endemic. That means it will be seasonal in character. It will be managed seasonally as we do other maladies. And for comorbid or aged or vulnerable populations, we, we, we project that much more energy. That's appropriate. That's how an intelligence society thinks. But in non-COVID public health, which we collapsed, we must provide surplus energy. So all the things that were not diagnosed, all the procedures and processes that were neglected or marginalized, the new mental health conditions that, 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 that were created over the course of the pandemic, the physical health conditions, the general societal angst, children, all of this thing requires energy. One of the working hypotheses of the exit plan is high energy, high energy at the front. So no sentimentality, High energy, not because I have a fetish for energy or because I like high energy, it's because we collapse the systems. So we need to, to reconstitute the systems even to 2019 levels, 2019. We have to provide that much more energy. So it is all the systems at once, high energy at the front, including that vulnerable population in COVID, but especially in non-COVID public health, huge surge, reach out to the population, who's not well, who hasn't been diagnosed, in the business area, in the business sector, business system as well, reach out to all the companies who's in trouble, who, who hasn't been able to, to access working capital for whatever reason, who's on the, on the verge, who needs to be reconstituted. It's not because government has a central role in business, but because government was responsible for the original ouster. And even if government removes restrictions, tens of thousands of businesses are either on the, on the, on the edge or disappeared. So it's not enough to just remove restrictions, even though that's a that's a, a key first point in, in the in the strategy. All things need to be worked in, in a simultaneous choreography. But Irvin, we're left with this struggle. So the very people who were in charge, who failed to have the foresight to understand all of these complicated systems, who let them all collapse and focused entirely on COVID. I can kind of understand that in March, April 2020, when we just didn't know what this was and we didn't know how bad it was going to be. Uh, but at some point, we realized the limited uh, scope of COVID, uh, that, that there were certain populations that are very vulnerable and the rest of society, not so much. The fact that um, little kids were punitively punished by COVID policies, uh, even though they're at such small risk. So the very people who let all that terrible things uh, happen and, and led the charge on that are now the ones that we are going to expect to come up with this plan to, to, to sort of um, move past it. How, how, how can we trust these, the, the, these institutions and these people who allowed this to happen in the first place? What I call thinking were at the core of their, their absence, the absence of leadership and thinking were at the core of our collapse. And it was really a, a calamitous collapse for, for Canada. I've never seen it. Uh, some people will have difficulty accepting once they see what's happened, that this ha could have happened in our country. Now, obviously many of those people are, are still in decision-making roles at all levels of government, at all levels of public health across all parties and the professions. We did this plan for them. We did the thinking for them. And many of them, I should say, I could now say public, fed quietly into parts of the plan because they said, Irvin, you guys do the thinking, you do the structure. We don't exactly understand what the problem is. What, By the way, many people don't understand what the problem is. They think our problem is COVID and masks and vaccines. That is one widget of a larger systems collapse. You know, It is the key uh, original impulse for collapse. And we need to fix it, but we need to fix it in tandem with all these other systems. So once we 
have that broad structure. Structure again, the the exit matrix is eight by twenty-one across all the systems, several months out across all regions of Canada, with an endpoint, with a strategic endpoint. Once people understand that that is the choreography, rather than mask on, mask off. Obviously, it's mask off. I should just stress, but but that's just a tweet, right? Once they understand that, they can start to implement. We've done the thinking. They fed their parts in. They fed fed us intelligence across the country because the country is very big. So the regional, the regional character of the exit is very important. We have to trust that they will execute. And I see in bits now that they are co-opting or directly using our our elements, even though many of the systems collapses require really heroic energy in a number of areas because of the depth of the collapse. So that we're talking really national leadership, provincial leadership, coordination amongst the leaderships. And I hope that that happens. I'm certainly browbeating them quietly behind the scenes. And we've fed this to all the medical office of health and deputy ministers and different political parties, but it is, it remains a paradox of the time that we need better leadership for the times. It's not obvious that Canada will survive 10 years out. It's just not obvious. We really have to up our game. Most countries, given the performance of the last two years, would not have a tomorrow. And we see this around the world. Different countries are in difficult straits. And we maybe have been forgiven by history. Maybe we do have a tomorrow. But God forbid we should repeat this performance in the next calamity because it will be more, more dire. This was not a world historical pandemic on the mortality count. I'm sorry to say it was not. It was a pandemic. It was global. We survived it as a country. We won't survive the next one. We won't survive the next war, the next international conflicts. We have to up our game and understand that we have to draw the right conclusions, right? No feeling sorry for ourselves. And so the exit is to prepare for tomorrow. And that is certainly part of our thinking in, in the choreography. Okay, well, I have two questions that come from that. I'm not sure which to ask first. So I'll ask you them both, and then you can you can decide which one goes first. Uh, so, so, so number one, you said that uh, Canada almost collapsed, and we might not survive. Uh, it, it, we're lucky to survive ten years from now. So, so what is the threat? What what might happen, or what could have happened? Are you talking about from a perspective of national unity, of separatist movements, of vulnerability from foreign attacks? Uh, can you describe what you mean by uh, the the risk, the, the the existential threat to Canada? Um, and then the second thing is you you said that um, we have to make sure that governments can't do this again. So how can we guarantee, how can we protect our citizens? How can we ensure that future governments don't give themselves this power uh, to act in a way, uh, to just declare an emergency, to say something's a bigger threat than it actually is, um, and and be able to go through and, and destroy our institutions like that in the future? Let me start with the latter question. It's a great question. The latter question is more difficult to understand and to to. To guarantee we can't guarantee that we'll have the right leadership for the right for for the next calamity although i suspect that the coming calamities will be much more pressureful pressureful for 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 canada externally and domestically than this one we overreacted or underreacted right leadership in many cases in leading leading provinces pretended that they were just one of us rather than leading when there were closures whether the closure were right or not government took all the energy out of the society and didn't compensate for the energy, right? All of these things are lessons that a society that is serious about non-repetition of catastrophe draws. 
if we move on in 2022 and pretend that the last two years don't exist, and by the way, I worry about that greatly because in the language I hear, I hear that things are back to normal, like nothing ever happened. Whereas a serious society, one that loses a war or almost loses a war or that created or, or committed grave mistakes of public policy administration, does huge introspection, not self-flagellation, not sentimentality. What did we do wrong? And what must we never repeat? And that's part of our work. Although we're not there to punish or, or, or do accountability, that will come in time, right? I've taken notes, but we're, we need to exit in order to create that intellectual space to draw conclusions. And hopefully the next set of leaders will, will draw that. We need a higher set of leaders across the professions because that goes to your first question. The circumstances around the bend will be wicked for our country. First of all, the world is coming out of its most serious catastrophe uh, since the Cold War. Maybe since the end of the Second World War. Huge economic drop, social conflict, collapse in, in a number of, of uh, public administration systems in major countries, uh, destitching of global structures. And we're the second largest country in the world. So we can collapse because history suggests, as I've calculated, that countries last about 60 years. Countries last about 60 years after which they collapse either through constitutional domestic collapse or war. We're going on 150, 354 years plus. Means every year on top of that is good luck and work, hard work. And we see many, it's very tragically around the world, many countries that are on the verge of, of collapse, disintegration, or fighting for their lives, some in war, some through COVID collapse, thrown through domestic circumstances. And that is not foreign to the Canadian future. We just imagine it. So the pandemic should, should bring to roost the idea that Canada is just as real as the other countries. We're not exceptional. We've had exceptional good luck. We come out of the pandemic with four major domestic pressures, any of which on its own could tear the country apart. The Quebec question is still live, whatever people realize structurally. If Quebec should ever go for whatever reason, there's no rest of Canada. The country disintegrates. The Western question is very, very sharp. It is much sharper than before the pandemic and is not understood by the rest of Canada. The indigenous question is massive and it has centrifugal pressures across the country that could make it impossible for the country to be properly governed, even as we imagine ourselves to be doing a national reconciliation, to which I'm sympathetic. And then finally, we've created borders from uh, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, province to province, province to territory, territory to territory, territory to territory, city to city, that have disunified a structure that took over a century and a half to, to make cohesive. So there are real, both physical borders and also regulatory borders that have been created through COVID restrictions, COVID borders, COVID thinking, COVID uh, mental structures that need to be unwound with great pace. And that's in the national exit, exit plan as well. Within the next couple of months, we need to bury all of those borders. It needs to be reunification of the, the national economic, social, and political space. That takes work though, however. If not, these borders become sticky. And at any point in time, New Brunswick can say, you guys aren't New Brunswicker, not welcome here. Or same with, with Alberta, same with Northwest Territories. And that's completely contrary to the original ethic of 
a federalism of confederation. We create a unity across the second largest country in the world. Now, internationally, it's even more wicked because as I described the post-pandemic world, Canada now has four major borders, all of them populated by great powers, and we're not one of them. We imagine everything is America, the A-axis, but we're close to China. You're from Vancouver, colleagues from Vancouver, Victoria and Whitehorse up north will appreciate that they're closer to Beijing than are Brisbane, Australia, Canberra, and Sydney, geographically. China's the major country of the post-pandemic uh, world. Whatever people think about China, it's just an objective fact, and we're close to them. So China's our western border. Russia is our Arctic border. Russia's at war with Ukraine, but we're, that means we're, at, we're immediate neighbors with a country that is at full-on war with the final E axis to, the, to our east. So ACRE, that's, that's our rectangle, acre, America, China, Russia, Europe. At any point in time, these borders could crush us or pull us apart. And if one does the math, it's 15 combinations of push and pull that could disintegrate us as fast as any of the countries that are in trouble today uh, are, are being pressured. And that could happen on a, any given Wednesday. That's such an incredible way of thinking about Canada and looking at the situation. Irvin, I don't think that many people uh, you keep it at the front of mind that we're, that we're so close to Russia, that we're so close to China um, in the way you describe. And, and I, know, I know you have a whole book on this topic, and I'm going to get you to come back, um, and, and we can really dive into uh, the strategic importance that Canada plays in the world and how we can really uh, grow to our full potential. So we're going to save that topic for the next interview. But I, I do want to ask you, while we're on this topic of disintegration, and you mentioned how we are on the the border with a with two uh, countries at war. I, I I have to ask you while you're here. You've you've lectured and taught in both cities. You're very familiar with uh, the sort of underlying issues of the conflict. So can can you sort of give us uh, an idea of what what do you think Canada can do in this conflict to be a force for good um, in 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 resolving or or helping to mitigate or helping to end this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Actually, at the outset, it's a, it's a it's a painful conflict to to behold and watch. It's uh, it would have been unthinkable ten years ago. But professionally speaking, I've been writing about these tectonic plates of conflict for the last several years. So it's not completely unanticipated. All of the scale is 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 horrendous and, and inappropriate. The there are two questions that are implicit in your one question. Canada is a force for good. Let's park that for a second because my own thinking, and it's in the book, and it's also part of my own professional work, is first Canada must think for itself and about itself. Nobody owes Canada anything. There's nobody around the world, and there are too few people in Canada saying, what does Canada need? How does Canada survive? And no country has a suicide pact, meaning that no country must do anything for any other country at its own expense. So we will help the world, but we will crumble while we're at it. My thinking is the reverse, is that if Canada thinks for itself at the right level, we can by extension be a great force for good for humanity, which is of course in historical terms, the better condition. We're all human. But our vehicle for the goodness is a Canada that thinks for itself, a strong, big Canada that survives. So let's take them on in, in, in sequence. Canada thinking for itself vis-a-vis -vis Russia first and foremost, 
must understand our basic geography. And I commend to all your distinguished listeners, as I do to my son, every second day, look at the map, look at our geography. The Arctic is opening up. Everybody should go visit the Arctic, especially our young. And then you will see that there are two Arctic giants this century. One is Russia, which controls over 50% of the Arctic space. And one is Canada. The second is Canada, which controls over 25% of the Arctic space. So the two giants, the United States, the European countries are far behind. So what are we going to do? Our posture could be directly confrontational with Russia. And I understand that at the moment it is such, right? And we owe ourselves the imperative of defense. But for the remainder of the century, the more intelligent posture is that of embedding these major countries at our borders, Russia, China to the West, but also increasingly to some extent with a Northern interest. And of course the United States, which by the way, I look at as just another country for in strategic terms, not our friend, not someone who will protect us. I think quite the reverse in strategic terms. I look at them as just another major country that acts like a major country. So what does a smaller country like us do with that wicked, now wicked geography? We embed them. We embed them in a framework of peace and prosperity with defensive assets at the play. But not imagining, as we do by Twitter, that we're going to war with them because they will all crush us fast, all of them. And in any combination will crush us even faster. And God forbid they should fight war across our territory, right? Or play diplomatic or information space or intelligence games across our territory. We need to up our game. And I guess this will be in, in a future interview or in the book that I have. I've written about Canada creating the Singapore of the North that embeds all these major countries, including Russia, including China, including the United States, Northern European countries in a framework whereby we're the center of an international market, a framework connecting four continents of two billion people. That's seven, a seven to one ratio, I think, of, of the continental North American market alone. And we're at the center of that because we constructed it. So that's a way of saying, Yes, Arctic sovereignty, but Arctic sovereignty vis-a-vis -vis the Russians is not building up bases. We can build up bases, but on top of that, we create markets, we create people-to-people -people relationships and travel and, and all that. That's coming out of this terrible war. In respect of the war itself, I do not see it as an ancient conflict between Ukrainians and Russians. We could talk about the history. I see it as a post-Soviet conflict about territory and borders and critically the legitimacy of two very young post-Soviet states. I mean, both Russia and Ukraine are old cultures and civilizations, but both of them, we forget, are very young countries. They're just over 30 years old. And each of them across huge geography is trying to secure legitimacy. In the Russian case, they're trying to secure legitimacy across the biggest territory in the world with 14 land borders and three maritime borders. It is the most complex country in the world and it is extremely difficult to govern. I'm convinced that the Russian governors do not even have an appreciation of what's happening in their territory. It's just too big. And they're all in Moscow. Ukraine is also huge. It is bigger than Germany, but it has a very, very young self-government culture 
and if I may be direct, very, very weak governors. To this day, no great president has arrived, now, including with the greatest respect, the current president, who was a very, very good comedian in Russian language. I, I, I would listen to him once in a while. But until the war, he was a terrible president. And the one prior to him, even worse. And oh, he's heroic today. And, and, and appropriately so, he loves his country. But the question is now, for a proper exit, one that serves Canada and the world and these countries, the only exit can be one that re-legitimizes or re-legitimates both the Ukrainian state and the Russian state side by side, both strong, both living in peace. There is no other solution. Whatever we say on Twitter, whatever our sentimentality, every other solution will conduce to disintegration of Ukraine first, and if Russia goes second, then it takes Ukraine with it. Repeat, if Russia disintegrates, it takes Ukraine with it. If Russia and Ukraine disintegrate, they take Europe with it. If Europe disintegrates, the world is in trouble. We're back in the 20th century, and that's bad for us because they're at our border. What is the exit? There must be immediate mediation. The mediation must come from outside of NATO, and it must come outside of the Soviet space. I've recommended Asian countries, some West Asian, some East Asian, because they're neutral and they're respected by both Kiev and Moscow. So Israel has stepped up. I don't know whether they have the assets to do it. I am talking about India, China, maybe Singapore, but in a consortium, they can help to negotiate two countries that are largely fraternal, that are fighting for different teams, that are really are warrior nations. I mean, both the Ukrainians and the Russians know how to fight. And they will fight for a long time. And it is tragic. So Canada must push for that diplomatic uh, uh, settlement. There need to be peacekeepers, in my view, in the end. I think I recommended Indian peacekeepers. Again, third force uh, under the UN umbrella to provide a, a separation of the, of the belligerents. In terms of the Canadian play, I think uh, the solution, one, one thing that, I, that has been mooted even today about uh, flights for refugees to Canada, we should have done that two weeks ago if we were a serious country. We did it with other countries. Israel is looking at that. Poland has been heroic on refugees. We must save maximum lives. In any conflict, we save lives. And Canada has uh, all the capacity to do that. We're just slow. Much like in the pandemic, we were slow to mobilize. Internationally, we're even slower. It's a couple of things on the future look of, of Ukraine. Obviously, it must be a sovereign state, but it will be a neutral state if it survives. And it has to have a character that is, and I talk about this in the book, interstitial. It must be a segue between the European Union and the former Soviet space. It cannot be part of a hard block because otherwise these major blocks will be fighting across this geography, much like we wish to avoid uh, the North, North American blocks and Chinese blocks and Soviet blocks, post-Soviet blocks fighting across a weakly governed Canadian uh, territory, which will again tear us, tear us apart. Oh, wow. I mean, there's so much there. And I and I and I really appreciate you breaking it down for us. I, I completely agree. Ukraine has always sort of been a buffer zone. And even the population itself is a mix of Ukrainians and Russians. And for a long, long time, they lived uh, together in, in, in one con in one country or one empire. And so uh, it's, it's such a shame to see 
them break out. But I, I really appreciate your time, Irvin, your clear thinking on this. I hope uh, that, that world leaders uh, will take the advice both on COVID and uh, the geopolitics in, in Europe and, and, the, and the importance of coming to a resolution uh, sooner rather than later. So uh, thank you for all, all your wisdom. And we'll certainly have you on again to talk about uh, building up Canada and, and the, the potential that we have here in our country. My great pleasure. All right, that's Irvin Studen. I'm Candace Malcolm. This is The Candace Malcolm Show.